Hello and welcome to a podcast about tactics. I'm John McKenzie and I'm joined by a man who had Rangers Twitter on strings with his expected points table this season. It's Stephen Russell. Stephen, hello. Hi John, thanks for having me on. It is a pleasure to be chatting with you today. And I can't be the only person who was expecting Stephen to have a much broader Scottish accent, but fortunately (laughs) I had been warned that this would be the case, so maybe not as stunned as other people. Yeah, I think everyone usually gets quite surprised by that when they see me on Twitter. So Stephen is a recent graduate of sports management, moving on to his master's in September, and he spent the last few years conducting tactical analysis for The Cynic, which is a Celtic podcast, and more recently moved into a job which uses football probability a lot, so we will be talking, no doubt, about that. In today's episode, though, we are spending most of our time digging through the miraculous turnaround at Celtic Football Club that was overseen by Ange Postacoglu, a turnaround that saw them return to the top of the Scottish Premiership after a surprise return to winning ways from Rangers the season before. Before we begin that, though, some news. By now, most of you will have seen that I'm joining the team at Tifo Football with The Athletic, and this means that, sadly, a podcast about tactics will be coming to an end. But it's not all bad news. I'll be running a show on the Tifo RSS feed, which will be a continuation of the concept. So keep an eye out for that. And as I say, it will be on the RSS feed of Tifo Football. So if you're already following that, you don't need to do anything. It will drop directly into your podcast aggregator. There is even more good news as well. So this week, I've uploaded all of the podcast about tactics episodes recorded so far onto a free to listen RSS feed so just search for a podcast about tactics in your podcast aggregator and you'll find them all those people who are contributing to the Patreon I will be shutting it down later this week thanks to all of you who've supported the podcast through its earliest existence it was a blast anyway now that that's all out of the way let's turn our attention to the real star of the show here Ange Postacoglu Stephen, to begin with, why don't we start off with a little bit of context? I think it's pretty impossible to understand Ange Postacoglu without understanding the last few managerial appointments at Celtic. Brendan Rodgers left the club in February 2019, having won three consecutive league titles. The club had gone through two coaches in Rodgers and then Ronnie Delia, who were both system coaches, for want of a better word. And then once Rodgers left in 2019, the club went back to a manager who preceded them in Neil Lennon. And we all know how that fateful stint went. But Stephen, I'd love to hear your take on this run up to the appointment of Ange Postacoglu, because the club seemed to have a tactical idea in both of those stints with Rodgers and and Delia, less so maybe with with Neil Lennon. So I'm interested to hear your take on the, the background here. Yeah, it was a definite change. And I think the main thing that you can sort of focus on is where the man management comes in. Because, like you say, Ronnie Dyler and Brendan Rodgers are very system-focused. And the idea was that they had a tactical vision and that the players would plug into that and be able to create that on the pitch. Neil Lynn was a lot more individual-focused. And that's not necessarily a good or bad thing. There are pros and cons to this sort of thing. But when he came in, it did start well. The players had a lot more freedom. And obviously, it's hard to say from the outside looking in. But they looked like they enjoyed that. They had a little more scope to you know, try dribbles, try shots from different areas and things that I'd assume players would quite enjoy. They got some notable big results, you know, there was like Lazio and stuff like that. So I think while it was a disaster, you can't point to it and just say it was totally wrong. But I think as it got towards the end of Lennon's tenure is where you can start to see where the issues lay. In the 2019 to 20 season, which was the one that was curtailed by the pandemic, it felt like the gap was closing. But after the winter break, Rangers kind of capitulated and the league stopped and it was just kind of assumed to be business as usual, Celtic was still the top dog. But then you get to the season without fans, um, which was last season, and there was a stark difference between us and Rangers. So when we came back, 
we were noticeably unfit and it really took us a few games to get going whereas Rangers were probably at their peak under Gerard throughout it all like they were very well drilled they came back very sharp very fit which after that long without football you know it's a big ask and I think this is where you started to see the issues with Lennon's style of man management as opposed to a Rogers or a Dyler in that when things started going wrong they got worse fast so Lennon's style was very much like aggressive do things make it happen and you know the emphasis on the players so when things go well, you're winning games. The players feel great because, like, well, I've just made this happen and I'm making things win. But when we were losing, what that led to was our pressing became very disjointed. It became ball chasing. So if we were sat back in sort of a semi-organised block, then you'd have players like Ryan Christie who were being shouted at and being told, you know, try, you have to make this happen. So they'd press up to the opposition box, but without the team following them because it wasn't a planned thing. And that caused a lot of issues. And then Further back in the pitch was a similar thing. So players started ball chasing a lot more because they were so keen to, you know, like make things happen. That you'd have McGregor and Scott Brown just leaving gaps in the middle. Um, and McGregor very uncharacteristically gave away a lot of daft fouls, gave away a penalty at one point. And I think that can pretty much directly link to what had changed in the system. I think the other two key things that probably changed tactically is, I guess you could say the muscle memory of Rogers started to wear off. We stopped working the ball on the edge of the box and long shots were preferred, which... We can get into a whole debate around the effectiveness of those. But, you know, it was a definite change. And then there was a clear breakdown in communications as well. Where we'd previously created chances from a system, we weren't really anymore. And I think the best example is the first derby of that season against Rangers. So we finished that game with no shots on target. And it was a whole thing about how poor we were in that game. But there were still weaknesses within Rangers. They weren't perfect. And I think the best example is Oyunusi was on the side of Conor Goldson and dropped off because one big weakness with Conor Goldson is how slow he is to turn. So when he gets pulled out, because obviously they're very position-oriented, so he's stuck in the line, stuck in the line, ball comes into Elianusi, he moves forward, and then he struggles to turn and get back. And Elianusi did this and made the run like three, four times. And every single time, the ball went back to our defence and we went around and no one was spotting it. So he was on a totally different wavelength to everybody else. And I think that was where we probably reached the point that it wasn't going to work putting the emphasis on these individuals and we did need somebody who could make the team into greater than the sum of the parts. Obviously, the big part of the context here is the fact that Rangers have their punishment when they're sent down the divisions and Celtic are able to enjoy sort of being the top dog in Scottish football for a long time. How much do you think that the club at Celtic took that for granted and didn't really think too much about the actual long-term planning for, I guess, managerial and tactical approaches? Yeah, I think that's definitely a key point because we could have been much further apart from the rest. And I think the fact that, I don't want to sound disrespectful, but winning the league was almost a given without Rangers there. And what happened then was the choice was we can either spend a little bit more, try and push ourselves and kick on in Europe, or we can sort of just accept the fact that we're going to win most things domestically and that's it. That's the extent of what we'll do. And I think that's essentially what happened. And even when Rangers got up to the top flight around 2016-17 season and Rodgers was there, they were really, really poor. So even at that point, we were still almost taking it for granted that we were going to win things because obviously we kind of looked out with a coach like Rodgers and we did just win trophy after trophy through that period. But through that time, while we weren't really forward planning, we were just sort of resting on our laurels for lack of a better phrase. Rangers were planning. They were making long-term decisions. 
And that's why all of a sudden you get to the 2019-20 season and we're kind of stuck in a bit of a panic, like, what do we do? And, you know, we spent a lot of money that season. You know, we spent seven million on Chris Julian, a centre-back who, while he had his moments, probably, or was that the season before? But either way, probably not too suitable for the system. I think people forget with Celtic a lot that when you're playing a line that's, you know, 40 metres high a lot of the time, then you kind of need defenders who can fit into that. And you can't just, and obviously there's a Shane Duffy example where, again, we panicked, we thought, because the other part of the context was last season was the season that we were going for 10 titles in a row, which obviously, unfortunately, didn't happen. And I think the panic around that was quite clear because at the time we were actually looking at Mark McKenzie, who went to Belgium for £5 million, and we opted for a £2 million loan of Shane Duffy instead. And... The clear differences in how they play and the styles they fit are really stark. And I think that our forward planning really did let us down on that. We're going to talk a lot when we're talking about Ange Postacoglu about the state that the squad is in. We've already started touching on it there, but by the time that Neil Lennon comes in, how far off do you think the squad was from where it should have been? I think it's interesting because I think you've definitely got players that weren't really fitting what we were trying to do. And the best example of this was last season where we brought in Albion Ayeti. And at that point, Len had decided that we were going to play a 3-5-2. And for that, Ayeti was fantastic because even though he did play a 4-2-3-1 at Basel, it wasn't really the same style. His key traits were sort of lurking around the penalty box, getting on the end of these loose chances. And it worked. He came in, we played the 3-5-2, and he got off to a really good start. You know, his XG, his goals per nine, all through the roof. And then a few games later, a few things weren't working and we scrapped the system entirely. There was no continuity. And then we're still stuck with Ayeti, who just can't really fit into the new system. So I think when you've got things like that, and then, you know, I mentioned Shane Duffy, a back-to-the-wall defender trying to play a 40-yard line. You've got players who, obviously, this was one Sanchez already coming in, but like James McCarthy, who come in, who was at a Palace team, that his job was essentially sit in the defensive block. We've got fast players around you who will all do the attacking. You can just sit and cover it. You're asking them to come into a team where you are expected to do everything. That being said, I think the team last season was really, really good because you had players like Edouard, Christie, Ayer, Frempong, and we, you know, we had Elianusi on loan, Forster on loan. So the team was really good, but it left a huge drop off this season when all of them were leaving. Well, let's move on to start talking about Ange Postacoglu because last summer it is then announced that Postacoglu is joining the, the club. And I'm guessing at this point you probably didn't know too much about him. And I'm guessing that most of the listeners here probably don't know much about him either, even despite his antics at Celtic. So I've got his footballing CV in front of me. So I'm just going to whistle through it. So in terms of his playing career, spends most of his time playing for a club in Australia called South Melbourne uh, and then has a few appearances for another club in Australia called Western Suburbs. Gets a few appearances for the national team under 20s and then four full appearances for the Australia team. But that's the extent of his, um, his his senior career. And then I think reflecting that then, if you look through his managerial career, you see him having to start off, you know, at, again, smaller clubs in Australia. So again, South Melbourne that he has experience with as a player. He, he coaches them for a little while. Australia unders, he's got time with both uh, the under-17s and the under-20s. And then he's got, I'm guessing, a Greek team there. Uh, Whistlesea Zebras as well. Brisbane Raw back in in the A-League. Melbourne Victory again uh, in Australia. And then he has a fairly long stint as the Australian national team coach. And then he joins Yokohama F. Marinos, who are the club that he joined Celtic from. So a really interesting profile for 
a manager who most people haven't really heard much of. Maybe the best people will have remembered is his stint with Australia in the World Cup. I think it was 2014 when he was with them and the, they performed fairly well, but got knocked out in the group stages anyway. So really interested to hear your thoughts on this new Australian manager that no one really knows much about coming across to coach your club. So how did you start to learn about what to expect from him and how long did it take for you to get excited about him as the manager of Celtic? I mean, I think the first thing was that the other manager we linked with was Roy Keane. So I was just excited that it was not <laughs> going to be Roy Keane. But, um, my knowledge was initially quite basic because obviously I don't follow much Japanese football. I don't follow much Australian football. So I knew he'd taken Australia to the World Cup. I was vaguely aware that he was in the J-League purely because my work pattern last year was pretty much that was when I was watching football. But Straight away, it was a case of just watching back old games to try and get a feel for what he was doing and across, you know, when he was in Australia, when he was in Japan. And I did feel like what I saw. One thing that specifically stood out to me was that in Australia, his fullbacks were really wide and high. But then when he moved to Japan, he started to use inverted fullbacks. And this is a little bit a topic that I'd like to discuss more later on. But pragmatism obviously gets branded around a lot. But this is the sort of pragmatism that I like. It's not kind of, you know, let's get everyone behind the ball, lump the ball forward and call it pragmatic. It's, I have a different set of players, a different like you know requirement of what I want them to do. So adjusting to the group of players to enhance your philosophy. And that's the part that doesn't change. After about a week or so, once it had sort of maybe settled down from the initial reaction, you got a lot of um, like, quote unquote, Twitter nerds singing his praises, which I think that was a big thing for me that there was so much research I could do. But if people more familiar with him were saying that this is going to be good, then, you know, I, I can't really go against that. And then you started to see a few analysis pieces flying around. Um, again, all singing the praises. Everyone that I spoke to who'd worked with him in the past all said that, you know, he's a very, very good coach and he'll really suit Celtic, which was probably a key debate at the time because. The one thing about Neil Lennon that got a good proportion of our fans on side is this idea of being a Celtic man, you know, someone who grows up, supports the club, that sort of thing. And it was Dave Flanagan at Dave Flan on Twitter who read Angie's book and sort of reported back on his authenticity, his beliefs, his background. And, you know, if we want to try and quantify this idea of a Celtic man and we want someone who can connect with our fans, then this is somebody who can do that despite the fact that he's you know applied his trade on the other side of the world but the fan reaction was quite interesting just because foreign managers coming into Scotland always get a hard time I think Alessio Kilmarnock's a good example whose target was to finish in the top six and was sacked when he was fifth so managers do get a hard time coming into Scotland and about a week after Ange was linked they went out of the cup to Honda FC who are a non-professional side and this was a whole thing. It kicked off everything on Twitter and I did a little investigating and looked into it. And Honda FC are a really curious case. They're nicknamed Jay's Gatekeeper in that they kind of gatekeep the J-League because they refuse to go professional because they don't want to lose the corporate backing that they would have to give up if they went professional. So they're perpetually taking a promotion spot to the J-League without ever actually being promoted because they can't be. And they're constantly in the late stages of the cup. And I think I brought this up at the time and was saying like, well, it's maybe not that bad. And that was not met well. <laughs> the funny thing is, is if you actually look through Ange Postacoglu's record, at all of the clubs he's managed, he's he's a winner. 
pretty much every club he's been at, he's got got results. We talked about even his time in the Australian national team, where he, he did didn't make it through the group stages of the World Cup in 2014, but he wins the uh, AFC Asian Cup in 2015, and yeah, wins the league with Yokohama, wins stuff with the under 20s and the under 17s. He wins stuff with Brisbane Raw, wins stuff with South Melbourne as well. So presumably, you are quite confident that you know this is a guy who can get results in very very different footballing contexts yeah i mean it's the sort of thing you want to see that the manager can do it in different environments with different teams and because i think every club wants to think that they're unique and in a way every club is unique but they're not totally different there's a lot of similarities across different places and i think there probably was an element of snobbery almost in that it's a manager we're sort of not familiar with he's done it in these leagues that we maybe don't rate as highly so Will he be as good? And it's the same sort of thing that we're always criticising the Premier League for doing with like Scottish Premiership players and Scottish Premiership managers. So I think if you stepped back at the time, then it looked like a good appointment. I think you probably do have to give a bit of leeway though, considering that we just had a year of the board basically laughing at us every five minutes because it was such a disaster. And there was a lot of fan context, like putting gates up around the stadium to stop fans being able to gather and protest. So I guess you could say the fans were at a bit of a war with the club. So I think with the context, you can probably forgive some of that. Well, let's move on and talk a little bit at this point about the basics of the Postacoglu approach to football tactics before we go any further, because we will trace the, the season through chronologically in a few stages. But I think it's good at this point to talk about just the very basics of Ange Ball, for want of a better term. So let's begin by breaking down three different areas. So we'll start off with in possession. So if you were to talk to someone who's never watched Ange Postacoglu's football teams play, what would you say about the way that they play in possession? Probably start with the shape. So it's a 4-3-3 shape. There's a single pivot and two free eights in front of them, which is quite relevant because we didn't have any natural eights. We had two converted tens who were playing as an eight. So that part of the role is quite specific. Very wide wingers, which was because we had the fullbacks inverted, which was quite new to a lot of our fans. The idea that the fullbacks weren't trying to overlap, weren't trying to stay wide, but would instead come and essentially stand in front of the centre halves. And with the pivot between them, it made a 2-3 rest defence structure. I think how we actually play, Ange Postacoglu is a big proponent of positional play, which we'll get onto the advantages of that as we move through the podcast. That means very possession-oriented, but early on it was very intense as well, perhaps to a slightly detrimental level to some of the things we were trying to do with the positional elements. But that was, you know, that was the vision of Ange we were sold. This is going to be fast, attacking, intense football. We'll likes to build up through the press and we'll get onto it when we talk about our European performance but very early on there were clips of the players visibly looking to the bench and wanting to go long and Ange you know, shaking his head at them like no play through the press I think that probably defines what was going to happen through the season how much belief Ange has in this style so yeah lots of positional stuff lots of making space manipulating space doing things interesting things with fluid movements from players all over the place which is which is why we love him, right? But also the other thing that we get from, from Postacoglu is out of possession, some quite intense pressing, right? Yeah, and it has been so fun to watch because he adopts an option-oriented press, which essentially means that the emphasis is on closing down the passing lanes that the other team can look at. You can use that for pressing traps if you're careful, but Ange tends not to. It is very much just we're going to stop the other team being able to play football and we'll get into sort of where that went wrong a little bit at the start of the season shortly, but it was very much 
we're going to cut off all your central options. You can go wide if you want, but then we'll just push you into the touchline and take the ball back, or we'll push you back to the goalkeeper and make you go long. And I think that was the sort of thing that you know we were desperate to see after such a season where we were struggling to imprint ourselves on games. Such a proactive approach out of possession was really favoured. Yeah, so pressing not necessarily to directly win the ball back, but force the ball into areas where it's going to eventually result in the ball being turned over so you can regain possession and do the stuff that we were talking about in the in-possession stuff. Yeah, definitely. Turnovers, um, and obviously this brings us on to the third part of what we're going to discuss, are so critical to how Ange wants to play. Um, and early in the season, we did have such a high number of turnovers because it was based on creating that. And because we were so compact, we had the fullbacks inside, we had a good coverage of the central areas, we could win these transitions. And it meant that we could have really fast counterattacks because the opposition's yet to be organised. You know, that's the whole thing around counterattacking. And like I said, that there were some issues with how fast it was happening, just in that our players sometimes weren't ready either and weren't taking advantage of the proponents of positional play. But the other thing was that we have started counterpressing again, which is is really fun. And that's the big part of the two three rest defence that again we're already so compact in that central area that if we lose the ball we can just win it back and go. And there are examples, I think it was Jablonic in Europe early on, where we win the ball back directly because Greg Taylor, our left back, is so narrow. He's already in the half space that he wins it back directly, plays Turnbull through, who scores. And I think early on, you can pretty much see that these things that Ange has brought in that we weren't doing last season were going to be favourable. Let's just talk a little bit about rest defence, just for the people who aren't too au fait with the, with the phrase. But rest defence is basically what your defence is doing when you're attacking essentially so that when the ball is turned over they are able to be structurally able to deal with any of the things coming coming their way so obviously teams that play in this sort of aggressive way will often play with a high line you've already mentioned the high line that Celtic play with so the rest defense there is designed to overcome that that high line frailty that could potentially be exploited by teams counter-attacking into it right yeah, exactly. And there's a really good article on Spielberg about the different rest defence structures. And the advantage of playing with a 2-3 structure is that you have got that coverage in the second line because you have three players in that space rather than two. Access distances to the ball in a transition are much shorter, so you have more coverage, more control. Which means that when we lose the ball and a team's thinking, can we get forward, can we play the ball over and try and take advantage of this, they don't have the chance to play that ball because somebody's on them far quicker. So I'd say that's probably the thinking behind us sticking with the 2-3 and sticking with the inverted fullbacks. Right, well, let's get on to the season itself because I think this football, I would probably describe it as knife-edge football, is that you're, you're trying to play such a, a fine line on so many different levels that if it goes wrong, it can go very wrong. And pretty much that is what happened at the beginning of the season. So you lost three games in the first few months of the season. I don't think you actually lost any games in the league after that. So the 19th of September, you lost to, to Livingston. And after that point, I think you drew a couple of games, but you didn't lose again in, in the league. There was obviously a loss to Rangers in August before that. And the season kicked off actually with a loss to Hearts as well. So things were pretty sketchy at the beginning of the season, right? Yeah, and I think it's a combination of things. There were some tactical issues I'll get into in a second. But a big thing was that we did actually just fall on the wrong side of variance a little bit. Sorry to be on brand and talk about expected points, but (laughs) in that first eight games, we picked up 17.75 expected points, but only picked up 13 points. So we were doing something right, but it wasn't quite paying off. I think one of the examples is probably the home 1-1 draw with Dundee United. After that game, fans were not happy because we've dropped points at home to a team that we should really be beating if we want to compete for the league. 
But when you simulate that game over, Celtic win that game in 98.33% of simulations. And if you watch the game back, that pretty much checks out. There was a miss from about two yards out with um, the goalkeeper already beaten, which you can't really pin on the manager. But that doesn't mean that there weren't issues either. So it's clear that it was a weaker period as well. So the average expected points through that first eight was 2.22. The last eight, which included Rangers twice instead of once, was actually a 2.38 average. And the season average was 2.44. So it was a difficult start. But the main things that you can sort of pin it down to were low control and high turnovers, which obviously is effective for disrupting the opposition before they can settle into the ship. But it didn't let us get into a rhythm. And I think that was a problem because we talk about positional play where the main thing is that you want those three different types of superiority. So you want numerical superiority where you're overloading the other team. You want qualitative superiority where you're getting your players, you know, you're good, like your wingers, players who can take them on in 1v1s where they can take them on. And positional superiority is where you're, you're finding these holes in the opposition structure. You're finding, you know, the spaces that are going to disrupt the other team. We weren't really able to do that because we weren't taking enough time on the ball. So the idea was we'd win this transition. And because we'd just fire straight into it and go for a counter-attack so directly, we didn't really have the chance to set up in our shape. And I think there's been the thing before where Guardiola talks about this, where he had the rumours of that pass rule, where it was the idea that you have to play a certain amount of passes before you attack because we need to get into our shape. It's like we were doing the opposite of that, which it was a problem for a little while. I think the other issues were, one, with our option-oriented press. So like I said, it was very focused on just shutting off all the options of the other team in the centre and just pushing them up. Now, the problem was that the defensive line wasn't really ready to commit in the same way that we were at the front. So what tended to happen is you'd have your front three and you'd have the two eights behind them and they would all move on the first pass. So if like the opposition right centre-back went to the left one, all of them moved, went up, the defensive line didn't really push up with that and you ended up with the pivot, Callum McGregor, totally isolated in the space. And what we saw happen was in that first derby, we were doing that, we were pushing up and Rangers were just happy to go back to the goalkeeper and drop the ball on Callum McGregor because they had four players around him. So it didn't really matter if he won the duel because they were winning the second ball anyway. That became quite a key problem for a little while until we solved it, which we'll talk about shortly. The other two things were um, crosses. So when we played Livingston, who obviously beat us in that initial run of games, they closed us down very aggressively when we tried to face up the ball in the half spaces. Apart from that, they were in a very structured low block. They weren't pushing wide. They were letting us cross the ball. And that essentially forced us into more crosses because we had the fullbacks inside who were you know, trying to turn with the ball, trying to get facing the goal, and Livingston was shutting them down there. So their only real option was to then go to the winger, who wasn't being shut down. So they could either wait in the middle and we could pass along the face of um, the box just endlessly, or we could just cross the ball in, which is essentially what Livingston wanted us to do because obviously not all crosses are made equal, but when you're crossing from very wide and it's a very inefficient use of the ball, they could head it away. And that's essentially what happened for the full game. And that did become a theme through the first half of the season that the games where we struggled and we did drop points, we had an abnormally high number of crosses. And the final thing was probably personnel, which... It feels like almost years ago, the start of the season, looking back at the players, but that first derby, we had Edouard playing up top and Kyogo was actually wide left. And if you look like the Michelin game, we had Ryan Christie still, who was playing as a left winger because we didn't really have anyone to come in. So I think there were teething issues, definitely. But I think if you were looking at the process rather than the outcome, there was definitely a lot to build on too. Yeah, it's interesting hearing you talk about these things because these are all 
facets of positional play focused teams that can be a problem one it's a complex system you need to spend time getting your players learning what the roots are learning what they're expected to do in certain situations that just takes time the other is really interesting hearing you talking about how so much of positional play is about giving yourself the time to get your players into the right areas as well it's not just about getting the ball into dangerous areas because anyone can get the ball into a dangerous area if there's no one around there's no point doing that and then the other thing being that when oppositions realize that you are going to dominate them in possession then the easiest thing for them to do is sit back, sit deep and do what you were suggesting there, which is force players wide, get them crossing the ball in and have decent headers of the ball and clear everything up. So how much of this do you think was was simply just that teething issue stuff that you've talked about? How much do you think actually Ange Postacoglu himself solved by making tweaks? I think it's probably a 50-50 split, to be honest. Like you said, it takes time to adjust to this. And I think Ange's approach to this is really interesting in that when he came in, there were only maybe two or three actual key changes in those first games, but they were very exaggerated. So the inverted fullbacks is a really good one to start with. So in that first game, Ralston, who was playing right back, basically came into the sixth position next to McGregor every single time, religiously. And you could see the um, him almost like liaising with Ange at the side, who was you know shouting at him, directing him, getting to the middle. And it was every time he picked up the ball. As the season went on, the fullbacks learned that you could do it dependent on the situation. So it wasn't necessarily that you have to go and stand there. But they'd learned at that point that there were benefits to doing it. So if that's how you want to play the game, you can move in there. And I think a really good example, um, which I actually brought up to Jamie Hamilton on The Cynic recently, which was also a great podcast um, because, God, Jamie is so smart, was that against Dundee United later on in the season in the Cup, they had identified, which was the same thing that Rangers and Alkmaar had identified against us, that we struggled to build up without Callum McGregor. So the solution there was just simply man-mark Callum McGregor, don't let him on the ball. And they tried to do that. They were playing a 3-5-2 sort of shape. They had two midfielders and one of the strikers dropping off on McGregor at all times, which shut him out. But our solution then was, and it's hard to say whether this was Ange or whether this was McGregor himself, but McGregor dropped out to the right-back position. Juranovic, instead of coming into the six, went up almost like an eight, and then McGregor picked him out with a few vertical passes, broke the lines, and that forced United to drop off a little bit. And I think it's things like that that you can sort of see how early in the season they wouldn't understand the different nuances of what was going to happen and why they were doing it. So when Ange comes in and says, do this every time, we'll do that until it works, and then you'll understand. It helps the players buy in because they're seeing, okay, we're doing these very simple role changes, and it's working, You know, we are playing better, we are getting more comfortable. Let's talk a little bit about the personnel at this point, because as you mentioned, like so much of what I think improves as the season goes on is is the improvement of players in certain positions. So yeah, do you want to talk us through the personnel at the beginning and then maybe talk about what happens after the January window as well? It's really interesting because like I was just saying there, that the team at the start of the season is totally different to the team now. And I think the Derby is probably one of the best examples in that we just brought in Kyogo Furuhashi from Japan. And in the first derby, Edward started through the middle and Kyogo started on the left. But once Edward came off and Kyogo went through the middle, we started creating more chances. And I think that was the point because I think it'd be really unfair to say Edward's, you know, not as good a player as Kyogo or anything like that. But you could sort of see that as Andrew was bringing in his recruitments that were molded into his system and his vision for the team, things would improve. The other example I mentioned was Ryan Christie on the left. We'll talk about this when we talk about Europe a little bit more, but Again, not a totally suitable player. He's not a natural winger, really. He's more of an 8 or a 10. So 
you sort of lost that. And then when we brought in, you know, Jota on loan and stuff, that improved a lot. So I think once we settled through the players we were losing, you can probably identify the team as obviously Joe Hartingle who came in. You had Ralston who pretty much hadn't had a spot at Celtic ever because he was a very limited player. And I think he still is, and there's issues with the system that we can talk about later on and him being a fit, but that's essentially what we were left with. Obviously, Carter Vickers was brought in on loan, Starfelt was signed, Greg Taylor, who um, was here last season after signing from Kilmarnock, was a left-back. You obviously had the captain, McGregor, and this is where it gets really interesting that Rogic and Turnbull were both 10s, but obviously there's no 10 in the system, there's two high 8s, so they were brought in and to, to essentially play there. And then we'd obviously brought in Kyogo, we'd brought in Jotter on loan, and we'd brought in Abada from Israel. So already, once the season had sort of settled through that initial transition, it was totally different. And this is where January becomes even more critical for the season. So we got a lot of injuries because I think when you bring in a manager who plays this sort of intense style, the first season's always quite rough. Um, I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with that, um, being a Leeds fan. <laughs> yeah, we'll not talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the thing. So we didn't have a huge squad and we didn't have much depth and we were getting a lot of injuries. We got to December, we were six points behind and it was looking bad. We had youth players getting minutes, players out of position all over. And, and this is where my model, which gives probability for the full season, gave me some like interesting insight into what could happen next. So at that point, six points behind, we had a 35% chance of winning the league, which was slightly higher than the rest of the other probability models at the time, but roughly in line. When you strip the context away, so you didn't try and account for any other context other than performance, so if you just looked at Angie's performances for the season, despite being six behind, then it rose to 55% chance of winning the league. So what you could sort of look at then was, if Ange could overcome the injuries, overcome the squad depth, and maintain the performances from the first half of the season, regardless of the gap, we were still very likely to win the league. You get into January then, and obviously, I think it's probably fair to say that Andrew was given a bit more license to sign players in his mode, because if you look at the summer, you know, you've got a split of players like McCarthy and Giacomacus who were signed as more the typical specialists that Celtic would sign, and then you've got like you know the Andrew players that were brought in like Jota and Kyogo. When we get to January, you've got like Hatate, Maeda, Idaguchi's not had much of a chance because he's been injured. Um, obviously, he was brought in as well. Matt O'Reilly. You've got these guys coming in who went on to make an instant impact and were very clearly signed to make a first-team impact in the team. And I think that's probably where you can see how, as well as a few tactical tweaks we'll discuss shortly, Ange did solve a lot of these problems just by being smart with recruitment. Right, let's move on to talk a little bit about the European campaign that that takes place. So there was a disastrously short-lived Champions League campaign, which ended where it began, knocked out against Michelin in the qualifying stages. And I guess Europe in general was a, a disappointment for you. But I'm guessing that the qualifying round of the Champions League was sort of in that same time frame as uh, things going wrong for you in the league as well. This obviously happens, I think, before the, the season's properly kicked off, right? So you just filing that in the cabinet of taking time to get going with Ange? Yeah, we'll, we'll go with something like that. I think it's quite an interesting game to focus on, really, or a tie to focus on, rather, because it did really split the support. Because obviously, at this point, like I said, you know, you, you had people like me who were just all aboard the Ange bus. We were all in. And you had, you know, sceptics who were thinking, mm, we're not really a fan of Celtic trying to do this almost like gung-ho with the ball. Um, we'd rather have someone like, quote-unquote, safe with the ball. And I think where that really can be pictured is later on in the tie. 
where we're very visibly tired. Like we've got no one else who can come on. There's not enough squad depth and the players are exhausted. Meechland are pressing us very, very high. And the players are trying to play through it like the system. And they keep looking over to the bench and Ange just keeps shaking his head at them and telling them, no, go again, go again. And the players very much want to just go long. And we do get through the press a few times. And where we sort of lose the goals of the system is that Ryan Christie was still on the left at this point. He didn't have the pace that we brought in later on with players like Jota to really take advantage of the superiorities we were creating by playing through the press. So I think you can pretty much split the reaction to that into two different types of like views. So you've got the results-based view of essentially, well, we lost the game, we were trying to play through it, we were trying to play the system and it didn't work. That's a negative. But if you look at it as a more of a process-based thing, we did break through the press. We did counter with those overloads. Issues with fitness, with speed, with personnel are things that come with time. So for the first sort of, you know, out in a vange ball, that's not too bad. And I think that game probably set the narrative that persisted through the whole season in that there was a lot of people saying stuff like pretty football's fine, but you need to be pragmatic, which obviously is going to be a key theme of what we talk about with regards to Ange Postacoglu. But in that game specifically, it was John Hartson on comms at half time who was saying like Celtic need to clear the lines to regroup. And it's these sort of ingrained beliefs into almost like the psyche of football in Britain. About, well, is that really true? Are we going to be more safe if we just concede play to meet your land? There's nothing saying that if we'd have just sat back in a 4-4-2, that we wouldn't have still lost that tie, that we wouldn't have lost it worse. So, And I think the other thing that probably comes in as well was about trust in the system. So obviously the players were wavering at that point. Like I said, they were looking to Ange, and this is where Ange really drilled it in. I think it's really important to say that if one day Ange decided, mm, we're not going to do this anymore, this whole system that I've drilled into you, that we all believe in, that this is the thing that motivates us. If I, he turned around and said, we're actually just going to, you know, Atletico this tie, and we're going to sit back and we're going to soak it up because that's better for winning, then you lose all the belief in everything that you've done because you were playing this aggressive style because that gives you a chance of winning. Yeah, that's interesting. And uh, obviously the rest of Europe is fairly disappointing. You finished third in your Europa League group. Although, to be fair, just looking at the results, it's it's sort of like you won against certain teams, lost against certain teams, and you only uh, one point off Real Betis, who went through second in that group. So you did beat Betis and Ferenc Farosh in those games, two losses to, to Leverkusen. And then in the Conference League, the infamous loss to Bodo Glimt there as well across both ties. It's, I guess, harder to blame the Europa League and Conference League knockouts on early season form. So where do you think the Postacoglu got unstuck in Europe? I think there are a couple of things. I mean, I'm going to try and blame it on something else anyway, just for the fun of it. But um, no, I think the group is definitely interesting because like you said, we actually took nine points in that group. Rangers got out of their group with eight points. So sometimes these things just don't go your way. And that's unfortunate. But there were points where we did very clearly come unstuck. Like I think you could see when we played Leverkusen that we weren't in the same league as them. They were a level apart, and that is something that we need to improve on. But I think if you look at the games where we were much closer, like Betis beating us 4-3, there are very fine margins in these European games that I think probably contrast with Scotland quite a lot. So mistakes that we could comfortably get away with, or not even mistakes, just flaws in our play, were now being punished. So a player taking a second longer in build-up to sort of like, you know, compose, play the pass... In Scotland, that's fine, because there's not many teams who can pressure in a way that would disrupt that. In Europe, all of a sudden, he takes the extra touch and all of his options are closed and he doesn't know what to do. 
And I think that's probably where we found our first real test of the system and we realised that it wasn't all going to be straightforward. But it was still promising. Like I said, obviously squad issues are a thing as well. So going back to the bet is 4-3. That was, even though we lost, probably one of my favourite games of the season just for how much certain things came together. And that was a weak team as well. So Montgomery, um, a cover left-back who went out on loan, was playing as a winger. Ayeti, obviously who I mentioned before, not suited to the system, not really trusted, had to come in because Kyogo was injured. Soro was in for McGregor, who again, doesn't really have a place anymore, Soro. And Juranovic was forced to left back because of injuries. So at that point, you could probably look at it as things will come together. But right now, we've maybe been on the wrong side of luck. But ultimately, I think that's probably why Bottle Glimt was such a gut punch at the time. Because and you can't take anything away from Bottle Glimt because they're obviously a very strong side. You know, they beat Roma, who went on to win the competition. And they do a lot of things right and they have been doing for a lot of years. You know, they've started to get a few more high profile like transfers out of the club. So you can't take anything away, but there is a difference in budgets. Celtic's budget is much higher and not beating these teams consistently in Europe shows how inefficient we can be when it comes to how we use our budget. And the other thing was obviously, like I said, against Betis, we didn't have a full team. Against Bordeaux in that first game, apart from Kyogo being injured, we were pretty much a full strength team. So this sort of moment where everything clicks we'd been waiting for and it didn't come and I think that was frustrating because it was just after the 3-0 game against Rangers where everything did feel like it was clicking you know our fluidity had tore them apart and this team who was supposed to be so far ahead of us had sort of capitulated and it looked really good all of these sort of components of positional play that you know we'd been told about were were clicking we were superior we were looking like we had more players in better positions and all of this but I think there's blame to be put on us, but there's definitely praise to be given to Bodo because they very clearly learned from Rangers' mistakes. So they were much more structured. They didn't really commit to being pulled out of the shape to going forward, anything like that, which when we're trying to rotate and pull them out of position, if they're being so position-oriented, then that kind of takes away from what we're doing. And the other thing was how smart they were countering as well. So obviously I mentioned before how compact we are when we play in that sort of back half of the team. They were very good at picking the ball up on one side, moving it for, and then finishing on the other side, where we didn't really have the same presence and being able to use the numbers effectively. From a sort of wider context around the fan base, that tie was definitely a point that brung Ange down from after the 3-0 win, where we felt like we were going to win the league and we were so good. Because going into the second leg, after we'd lost 3-1 in the first leg at home, we fielded a severely weakened side when we did have a lot of the first team players that were fit. And I think at that point, it was almost like we'd thrown our hands up and said, look, the league's more important. We don't have the resources for this. We're just throwing in the towel. That probably, I know it was definitely contrasted a lot by some fans about how he's so uncompromising with his style, about how he wants to win everything. But then sort of, you know, we, we rolled over in that game. So I think ultimately Europe was very disappointing. But I think there's probably a lot of context to around it as well, that it's maybe not that bad as well. Well, let's talk about the flip switch that we've talked a little bit about where, where everything starts going well. Later on in the season, you wrote a piece about Ange Postacoglu titled Anti-Pragmatism, how Ange Postacoglu steered into the skid. So could you talk us just through the basic argument of this piece and focus on those areas where you think Ange actually improved things and got you playing to a better level? This is essentially where all of my arguments about pragmatism come together. Early on, where we did have that sort of stumbling start, where we come unstuck in Europe, 
The debate was that Angie's style is too idealistic. He needs to be more pragmatic. The line's too high, it's too risky, and we leak high-quality chances. So there were things like inverted fullbacks were being blamed for chances conceded on the wing. And this is where you can sort of see the disconnect between how Ange viewed it and how like maybe the general support viewed it was that the highest quality chances we were leaking at that point and most chances were from our right-hand side. Now, if you go back and watch them, that was predominantly in situations where Ralston forced an overlap that wasn't on. Now, positional play wouldn't really have a winger and a fullback in the same vertical zone because it just it leaves a gap somewhere else. So Ralston would pick up the ball, move through the half space and pass wide to Abada, who would stretch the pitch ready for his qualitative superiority, ready for his 1v1. Ralston, instead of sticking in the centre and pushing forward, would then follow the ball wide to Abada and try and overlap. Abada hadn't initiated the 1v1. You ended up with the two of them out wide, and there's a lot of examples where the ball would then end up in the box, and it would come back through that central gap because we didn't have the presence there because Ralston had gone wide and not stuck to the system. You can see the examples where he did stick to it, where when he was central, we controlled transitions so much better because we had that coverage, we had the shorter access distances, and as he's chasing back, he's already goal side of the winger. It's not as much of a recovery as it would be if he was over at the corner flag. So you could sort of see how that was an issue, but see how the system was kind of leaning towards solving it already. The other thing was the disjointed press that I talked about earlier about how like Rangers found that space around McGregor by just going over the press. All of this was solved instead of being pragmatic, and pushed the line even higher up. So what happened then was that when teams tried to go over the press, they couldn't because the centre-backs were there to contest for the duels. And we're talking at points in the league, you know, it was 10, 15 yards inside the opposition half. It wasn't a small change, but it worked because we had more control. In terms of managing the transitions, we were more compact. So again, we had more coverage. Teams were struggling. And I think one of the really key things that I found really interesting was the sort of the idea that if you've got a lot of space behind you, that's seen as a risk. But it can also play in your advantage because Celtic have superior players to most teams in Scotland. There are not many players outside of Celtic and Rangers that could do something, you know, spectacular against these players because we've got the most resources, we've got the most money. It stands to reason we have the best defenders and all of that. So as we were so tight and so high up, if the other team won the ball back and weren't losing the ball to the counter press, their option was essentially hit the wing because we didn't have a fullback out there, the fullback was inside down the wing as far as you can, and then get into the box. That's much harder to do if you add 10 metres onto the distance that you have to do that. So then you had these players who, I think a really good example is probably Regan Charles Cook from Ross County, who's had a great season. A fantastic player. He really excels attacking space. But even then, if you ask him to make up an extra 10 yards on Celtic, that's a really difficult ask um, for the centre-backs who are tracking back, Starfelt and Carter Vickers. Neither are the quickest. But with a bit more space, they can sort of use the inside as their advantage, push out a little bit slower so that their distance is much shorter to chase back, push the player into the touchline and recover the ball. So it was one of those things that even though it was perceived as that being the risk, the solution was to be riskier, be brave and really steer into it. And I think that was so interesting from Ange. Well, let's start moving on to talk a little bit about the future at this point, because I guess we've talked a lot about how what you've seen from Ange is like a constant improvement, a constant attempt to get more out of the players that he's got, the ability to recruit better players in positions to play roles better. So I'm interested in your thoughts on what you think the next step is for 
Ange Postacoglu and his football at Celtic? Like, what do you think next season looks like in terms of the system? Is it going to be much of the same, but better? Or do you think that he'll be thinking of ways to counteract the obvious, I guess, ways that oppositions will stymie or attempt to stymie the Celtic approach? We'll probably see more of the same philosophy. I think that's probably been the one key through his career in that he talks about it a lot in terms of, and I think this links in really nicely with what Chris Somersell was talking about on here recently, that believing in the football that you're selling is just as important as it being effective. Ange believes in it. He talks about it in with regards to that's the style of football his dad liked to play before he passed. That's what he wanted to watch. That's what they'd get up at like ridiculous hours in the morning to watch. That's what made them love football. So I don't think any of that will change. And I include the Champions League in that, whether we draw you know the biggest teams or not. I think that will be a constant. I think a big thing will be a change in recruitment. So one thing we can see, and I mentioned it a little bit before, was that you sort of in the summer we had a split of signings. So you had signings who you know were very clearly, you know, for lack of a better phrase, like Ange signings, like Kyogo, who came in, or Jota, who were very clearly suited to the system. Their attributes matched what we wanted to do. And then you had other players like Jackamacus and McCarthy who were brought in who were specialists and maybe didn't suit what we were doing. And this was the discussion that I had recently with Jamie Hamilton about what we were doing, because he obviously wrote the fantastic piece about specialists v generalists in football and how that changes. And I think that's essentially what we're looking for. So the best example would probably be Jackamacus, who obviously scored a lot of goals and has some use in the team. But the problem is that he disrupts our rhythm a lot by the way he plays football. So the example that's probably best is when we're looking to build up and we're looking to hit the striker for the striker to lay it off, Jackamacus backs into a defender, sort of wrestles with him a little bit, and then turns with the ball and plays it on. Kyogo drops off quickly, lays the ball off first time without getting entangled in the defender, and then makes the vertical run to try and exploit the space behind the defender. That suits our rhythm and tempo a lot more. So it's not saying that players like Jackamacus don't have good qualities. It's not saying that their qualities are not useful. But for our system, I think that's where we'll probably see a lot of changes in that our first 11 probably can suit the system quite well. Our backups probably don't, and that will need to change. And I think the main thing is about our overall success. So like as football becomes more and more commercial, it sort of resembles a very late capitalist market. So efficiency is how you have to be successful in that environment. Board recruitment in untapped markets like we've been doing and trying to get like the most bang for your buck, so to speak, is definitely the way to do it because Celtic do have a fairly big budget. It's a myth that Celtic don't spend money because when you look at teams with like smaller budgets who are regulars in the Champions League, it shows it can be done. So I think there's definitely that. And I think in terms of what he'll change tactically, we'll probably see the press get more aggressive. I think that's probably one thing that we've not seen as like peak and yet. In Japan, it looked a lot more aggressive than it is now. I think that's partly personnel, partly fitness, and partly just getting the players used to it. But if I was to sort of hedge my bets on one thing to change next season, I think against the ball, we'll be far more aggressive. Yeah, and you mentioned at the beginning of that answer that European questions should be raised again. So we said that last time around, Postacoglu's Celtic weren't that impressive in Europe. So what do you think it's going to take this time around for Celtic to actually perform on the European stage? One of the big things for me will be familiarity with the system, which starts to come in. I think when you are trying to play through teams who 
don't give you the same sort of allowances that a Scottish team would in that you don't have the chance to take an extra touch. You don't have a chance for your first touch to be slightly poor. Being able to know what to do ahead of time is really important. So I think Jesse Marsh's webinar on YouTube about Salzburg is really interesting with this because there's a lot of similarities with their ideas of compactness and sort of what you're seeing with Celtic's out of possession compactness as well. A big thing for Marsh's team was that after winning the ball back or when you're trying to do it, you can play through another team centrally. Even if they're in a low block, you still can do it. You don't have to resort to going to the wing and crossing. And one example was his centre-backs essentially playing a blind pass into the 10 area. So what he wanted them to do was, as they were retreating with the ball, instead of going back to the goalkeeper, restarting the build-up, he wanted them to essentially just turn and play to where they know the 10 was going to be moving. Obviously, they were counter-pressing anyway, so they could win the ball back if they lost it. It's a risky pass. But I think it's really applicable to what we want to be doing in the knowing where each other are going to be getting onto that wavelength is really important for how we can improve our interplay and how we can work through better teams because we have seen glimpses of it and I think that only improves as the teams get more and more familiar. So Stephen, to finally end then, I'm kind of interested in how you think that we'll look back on this period of Celtic's history, particularly from a, a tactical point of view. I'm, as you've mentioned already, a Leeds fan and we've just gone through our Bielsa moment. Whenever you have a manager like that, and I think there are real overlaps between Ange and Bielsa. You're not simply developing a fan base who enjoys a a particularly attractive brand of football, but I think you're also educating a fan base into what tactics can achieve. And I think one of the interesting things for me has been that since we've moved from Bielsa to Jesse Marsh, as you've said, we've we've almost lost that joy at the tactics uh, now you've just mentioned there Jesse Marsh is really he is quite pragmatic and in, in, in terms of his direct uh, counter-pressing style so I'm interested in what impact you think this is going to have on the Celtic fan base as well in terms of what their expectations are from their football team going forward and and if you think this will have long-term repercussions in in what Celtic fans expect from a manager and in terms of play style yeah it's a really good point I think you're absolutely right because when you're looking at this, there's an, every club has their own variation of this, but there's a desire to play football the Celtic way, right? Which, you know, if you go back through the history, if you look at like the 67 European Cup win and stuff like that, it's always been this idea that Celtic should play attacking football. But that's a really vague statement. And I think the way Ange plays attacking football is very different to how Brendan Rodgers played attacking football. Now, as you got into the second and third season with Rodgers, it was a very weird mood around the fan base in that, we were winning everything, but it kind of was not as fun because Rogers essentially like controlled games to death. A lot of games you just sort of, if we got to 70, 80 minutes, no, no, we were still controlling games exactly the same way. You, you knew the goal was coming more times than would be necessary to win the league. So it was kind of fine. And, you know, it doesn't take away from the celebrations because everyone wants to see the club win trophies, but it was a very different vibe to kind of what's going on this season. And I think having these discussion points, being able to go, oh, he's actually done something really different here. You know, this is, and a lot of our fans, you know, it's been around on Twitter, like, what's an inverted fullback? This isn't something we've seen before. I think that's really fun. And it links to another one of Jamie's articles about how you're running out of new things in football. And I think if you can bring something new to a group of people that gets them excited to go to the football, that's really important. So I think overall, regardless of whether we kick on and translate this into more success or this is kind of a peak, I think this will be looked back upon favourably because I think the disasters last season, the number of players lost, 
a lot of us, and I include myself in this, were pretty resigned to the idea that it was going to take a season two to compete and to love football again. So after the pandemic and not really enjoying football and not really enjoying watching Celtic, it was so almost like surreal to just overnight have someone who's come in who's told us, no, we can be confident, we can be cocky, we're Celtic. So we don't have to wait. And I think that, amongst some of his stances on social issues, have shown how in touch with the fan base he is. And excuse me from deviating from the tactics chat here, but I think that connection created is so important to creating a legacy. So like, I think the way I'd probably summarise it is I'm thrilled with Ange the manager, but I'm even happier with Ange the person. Well, that's an important reminder at the end, and I echo that as a big fan of Marcelo Bielsa, but this isn't a podcast about Marcelo Bielsa, so <laughs> let's end with, with just the enjoyment of Ange Postacoglu and long may his reign continue at Celtic. Stephen, it's been absolutely fabulous chatting to you. Just a reminder before we finish, again, this is the last episode for a while. If you want to hear more of this sort of podcast episode, though, you will be able to find them over on the TIFO Football RSS feed in the next few months. Thanks again again to everyone for your support and i look forward to you joining me over there Stephen. what's the best way for our listeners to catch what you're putting out you can find me on twitter or medium which is at sr football and then followed by an underscore i have recently parted with with the cynic podcast so i am looking to pursue more personal projects so you can probably find a lot of stuff on there and just before i sign off i feel like i should say congratulations on the role with tifo because that is fantastic i'm excited to listen to you well thank you so much Stephen, and thank you so much for coming on today thank you for having me you've been listening to a podcast about tactics i'm john mckenzie if you like our artwork then do check out frankie mitchell's portfolio over on her twitter account at made by frankie her work is incredible and she's often available for commissions so do check that out and then this music written and recorded by my good friend joe hill and his north arc septet you can find out more about them and listen to the music at www.joehillmusic.bandcamp.com see you next week